Hello and welcome to episode 156 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by the amazing co-host, the one and only Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of Crypto Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I'm doing well. We've got a lot of interesting stories to cover. We've got great guests. Let's get into it. Let's do this. All right. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the New York Stock Exchange wanting to be a marketplace for NFTs, Multis building the financial backbone of crypto native businesses and organizations, and Solana integrates Web3 Auth to lower the barrier of entry for decentralized applications. This is going to be a fun one, guys. I'm excited. Uh, to dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, making a return is Rian Lewis, author of The Cryptocurrency Revolution. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Rian? I'm all good, thank you. Lovely to be back on the show. Always a pleasure to have you. Um, we've also got uh, Thibaut, who is the CEO of Maltis. How are you doing, T? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And, oh my goodness, I am excited to introduce to you Mauricio Magaldi, who is the global leader of crypto here at 11FS, making a debut. How are you doing, sir? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me, Simon, everyone. Thanks. No worries. Well, let's jump into the news. First up, New York Stock Exchange wants to be a marketplace for NFTs. Um, so it said in a regulatory filing uh, with the US Patent and Trademark Office that it wants to be a financial exchange for crypto and NFTs, competing with OpenSea and Rarible and pretty much everybody else in the crypto space. Um, in the statement, NICE said it has no immediate plans to launch crypto or NFT trading, but regularly considers new products and their impact. Um, the exchange last year minted its first NFTs, but it was doing things like memorializing noteworthy IPOs like Spotify, Snowflake, Unity, and, and many, many others. So uh, Maurizio, actually, is, is a commentator on the space. Is this just big organization does a trademark or do you think that um, there's there's more to see here? I think it's uh, early on uh, trying to secure some of the trademarks. I think it's a, a specific strategic move, but it points to an intention of actually occupying the space. I mean, they're the stock exchange. There's a lot of trading in the NFT space. It would be thought to be natural to merge into that space as well. So I think that's a, a good indicator. If everything's tradable, then you want to be the place where everything is traded. Um, but, uh, you know, Kai, uh, as, as my other sense maker here, what are your thoughts when you see this? When You know, because folks like Coinbase and FTX are, are really making a play at being the everything exchange. Yeah, I, I think the most interesting angle here is, is really this broader trend of uh, the line between investors and consumers, you know, starting to blur. And what does this mean for things like shareholder loyalty? And so I think back to, you know, AMC was, you know, kind of became this meme stock and they did a, a shareholder loyalty program where if you own AMC stock, you get a, a free large popcorn when you go to a theater. And so as you have more and more retail investors, how do you provide you know, incentives and things that consumers would like that they get because they're an investor? Now, the problem is it's very hard to track with stock certificates. Uh, so I think the enrollment, you know, into the, the AMC loyalty program wasn't very easy to do. And so, you know, can NFTs become this loyalty play that are paired with actually owning the security uh, or the stock for a company? I think there are a lot of fascinating products that could be built and way too early to know what New York Stock Exchange is doing. But I think that that trend and that theme is going to continue to be more powerful. 
Yeah, Rian, um, I'm interested in your views here because we have actually seen companies like BrewDog as well, a brewing company, sort of do a lot around loyalty for shareholders. Is is that a macro trend? Are we going to see more of it? It absolutely is. It really is. This whole idea of NFTs with superpowers, I think we've got really hung up on the, um, or the public has got hung up on the hype that it's JPEGs, but really the utility of NFTs is things like being able to provide extra services bundled with products and so on. Um, I've been doing some developer relations work for Boson Protocol, um, and we've been working with a lot of fashion houses, for example for Metaverse Fashion Week um, for global brands who are looking to bundle products and extra membership services with um, using NFTs with their products. Um, Fashion's just one example, but I can totally see this idea of being able to sell NFTs that offer investors extra benefits, products and services, as well as obviously just the trading collectibles angle as well. But I think one thing's for sure, whatever they do decide to do, I'm sure it's going to be a very curated service and they are not the sort of NFTs that we see on this exchange is not what we see at the moment on a lot of open marketplaces. Well, yes, indeed. They are a highly regulated player, as you say. And I just learned that Metaverse Fashion Week is a thing. Uh, so thank you for that, Rian. That's that's amazing. Um, T, your thoughts on, on this one? Um, is this just boomers are going to boom? Because, you know, Bact, um, which is owned by the same parent company, they're doing quite a lot of volume in the crypto space. This is this is not an insignificant player in the market. Um, well... <sighs> The one thing I can, I can, I can tell you guys about is the, the amount of companies issuing NFTs coming to us. Like, this is crazy. We have so many different ranges of industry. We talked about the fashion industries. Um, we talked about, well, obviously the art industry is a big thing as well. We have a lot of independent creators and studios coming to us and, you know, issuing the NFTs. Um, one thing that really, uh, you know, um, uh, struck me is the music industry, which is not getting so much involved yet in the NFT space. Uh, and, you know, if you think about loyalty programs, for example, um, it would be an amazing, an amazing thing to actually, you know, uh, support a very independent artist and get VAP, uh, you know, seats or, you know, uh, um, unreleased tracks ahead of everybody else um, and then use them as either something you can keep as a collectible because, you know, God knows how, how, how we humans love collectibles, but also, you know, again, for more like speculative purposes, just like you would buy a piece of Picasso in the early days. I, I love that um, phrase that Rhiannon used a minute ago, like NFTs with superpowers or art with functionality, we called it on our NFT show, which is kind of, yes, you could buy something before and you could give somebody VIP access before, but could you do it to whoever the owner was? Uh, could you airdrop it to somebody? And that's that's where things get really, really interesting, which is if, uh, let's say, an artist creates uh, a music track and then UT own that music track, then potentially you have VIP access to whatever they want to give, you know, future discounts, access to, to, to arenas, whatever. But if you sell that to Rian, you no longer have access to all of that stuff that you had before. And let's say they create a new song, you're not going to get it, T, but Rian is. And there's nothing that the artist had to do to make that happen. That's all happening in the software. And that's that's hugely, hugely exciting. Um, Maurizio, anything else that stood out to you uh, about this story? I think in terms of um, 
the timeliness of things, I think there is a superpower of NFTs, which is the power of future perks. Anyone can develop a new feature in the future for whatever NFTs exist, because it's all public in the blockchain. So you can add value, even if you never minted the NFT. So as, as an organization, you can bring that audience to you, regardless of whether you had any involvement in minting that uh, collection. So I think we're, we haven't seen yet what this is going to look like, but the fact that it exists in permanent form on the blockchain lends itself to a number of use cases. So I, I'm super excited about that, especially music. As you say, it could, it could be one of the most powerful CRMs that's ever been created. And so when you have one CRM that can hold both you know, consumer uh, commerce data, things that you purchase, as well as potentially investment data, what you know, shares you own, like what can, in any third party can access it, what can be built on top of that, I think is one of the interesting themes. Absolutely. And if you look at even things like, you know, if you look at Board Ape Yacht Club or whatever, and um, people airdropping benefits to those members and having the idea of you have an e-commerce site and then you have some idea of, of a conditional commit where somebody can only buy exclusive items if they are, if they've got a board ape or something like that. I mean, this stuff is just so interesting. I think we're just scratching the surface here. Uh, T's point was a good one, which is there are so many folks coming to him right now to, to discuss doing NFTs and is it because of that? You know, are brands excited by that functionality, or is there FOMO, or have you seen a bit of both? T, what do you what do you see? Depending on the industry you're talking about, I guess um, I really see the the art scene, the art industry getting there because they, well, they're probably the ones suffering the most from you know current centralization of well the way auction houses are working, for example. So I think they. They get it. They get it. They know that this is going to be a new way for, for them to just thrive. If you're talking about fashion industries, I'm not so sure about them. Um, I think it's mostly more some kind of marketing thing. Um, but really, I, you know, we'll probably need to dig a little bit more. And usually the big companies reaching out to us. So I think we'll discuss what Multis does a little bit later. Um, but we're more, you know, we're targeting SMBs, smaller companies, builders. And when we see, um, you know, really huge companies, Fortune 500 companies reaching out to us because they need, you know, an infrastructure to hold their inventory, their NFTs. Well, you know, we kind of know that this is not mostly because this is FOMO. You, they don't, they don't get yet the very deep knowledge, um, you know, of the space of the underlying technology they're using. So I would say that, uh, you know, smaller companies and builders are really the ones that get it for now. But 2022 is going to be a super exciting one. We're going to go beyond use cases, which consist in just airdropping a new tokens for token holders, et cetera. We're going to see all the amazing things that we've been talking about. And surely big corporates are joining the momentum. This is inevitable now. What will people build with the ultimate CRM? Uh, with with this the assets with functionality, it's hugely, hugely exciting. Kai, uh, it closes out on this one because you know the, the public stocks market, the fintech market, the uh, share prices, crypto prices are all trending down, but it feels to me like NFTs haven't lost their mojo on the creativity side. Is that fair to say? Are you seeing something different? What do you think 2022 looks like for NFTs? It, it's impossible to predict, but I think one of the key ingredients here is, is just fun, that people are having a good time. 
And so I'm imagining like, will there be a, a trading floor in person for NFTs that you could show up and, and how it's basically a party right now that people are hanging out with their friends online, collecting the same things. You know, in many ways, it makes you feel like a kid again. And so I think you know a lot of you know, traditional brands are are seeing the the social aspect in the community, and you know people aren't buying this you know just you know this is this is money they need and you know they're they're planning for retirement they're buying it because it's a hobby uh, and it's fun and they might be able to have upside you know from it so I think it's just a very different market than what we see you know with equities or or with even you know cryptocurrencies. Yeah, if the everything bubble is over, people are still having fun with NFTs and I think that's uh, that's exactly where we are. All right, let's move to the next story. This one came from TechCrunch and it's about Multis. Um, who want to build the financial backbone of crypto native organizations. So um, Multis has raised more than $7 million led by Sequoia. Uh, other investors include Long Journey, Sound Ventures, MakerDAO, and several angels, uh, including the one and only Ryan Selkis um, and Diogo Monica, who have been guests on the show. Um, existing investors also participated, including Y Combinator, um, and originally described as a neobank for companies working with crypto company now intends to offer a software layer that helps Web3 organizations manage their crypto finances. Um, T, tell us about Multis. Who are you guys? What do you do? Who are you for? Um, and let's let's unpack this whole space of Web3 organizations. So in a few words, Multis, uh, we're building an all-in-one financial app to help Web3 organizations manage their crypto assets. So essentially what we're doing is that we're helping those creators we just talked about, for example, um, or DeFi companies or DAOs increasingly to just have, you know, better control and visibility, clarity over the finances, the crypto finances. Um, so this is what we do. Uh, we're still a small team. Uh, we've been, uh, uh, you know, launching the, um, the public version of the product a few weeks back. Traction has actually been huge, much higher than what, uh, what we expected, including with NFT studios, um, to come back to our previous points. So yeah, we, we're basically here to, give access to give the tools so that builders can focus on growing their business rather than, you know, uh, being super anxious about all those studio tasks, which consist in tracking funds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you're being very, very uh, coy about who some of the customers are as well. I mean, uh, Axie Infinity, Rabbit Hole GG, uh, just looking at your website, there are some very big names, very large, well-known organizations already using you guys. So when you say traction, that's definitely the case. I'm interested to as well, like, I think about what you guys do as being like almost the small business or mid-sized, you know, the, the CFO tools, the banking backend, the corporate banking, the payroll, like so many Web2 fintech companies kind of wrapped into one, but for Web3. What does life without Multis look like? What's a Gnosis safe? What does accounting look like? What does payroll look like if I'm, if I'm in this world? Well... If you look at the space today as a builder, I mean, the state of the current tooling is appalling. There's just nothing out there. It's like we're talking about people building the future of tech, but it's like they're still living in a stone age. So if we're talking, if we're starting with Gnosis Safe, for example, so Gnosis Safe is a, it's a multi-signature wallet, right? Uh, which means you need several approvals or signatures to perform transactions, right? Uh, and you can basically, you know, make this ap- approval threshold flexible depending on the size of your organization. So Gnosis Safe is basically a piece of infrastructure that helps you store assets as an organization. Now, the, the key thing to remember about the Gnosis Safe is that it's a very technical tool. 
It's initially a tool built by software engineers for software engineers in order to deploy transactions, uh, to deploy smart contracts, to, you know, manage protocols. So it never really was intended to help organizations manage their transactions, their assets, you know, um, with several people. Um, so this is one of the first thing. Managing your assets with crypto, uh, managing a crypto asset with Gnosis Safe Wallet, it's pretty much like you're using some code lines um, on a black screen and it creates a lot of anxiety and frictions with crypto operators. Um, so I guess this is the, the first thing you mentioned, Gnosis Safe. That's one of the alternatives to using Multis. Um, the other one would be, you know, for accounting. Um, and I'd say reporting, really. Um, you know, we're talking about multiple networks, multiple wallets, basically one wallet for every use cases a company uh, can have. Uh, we're talking about a lot of people all across the world because, again, distributed teams, contributors all over the, all over the place. So you need to find a way to keep track of what people are doing with the organization's funds. You need to be able to understand where it's going, where it came from, why those funds have been, have been sent out, et cetera, et cetera. So think of it as a man, as a, as a challenges of, you know, running a Web2 organization as a CFO and multiply it by 100 times. That's, uh, you know, the daily, daily challenges those Web3 operator finance managers have to deal with. Um, so basically, because you don't have tool, you're relying on spreadsheets. So the crazy thing is that spreadsheets is still the main competitor of most startups out there, right? Well, it's true in Web two as well, and we've we've definitely definitely seen that. I want to, I want to throw this open to the to the rest of the group because there are other companies like Utopia and many others starting to to do similar things to what you do and Multis, and I think um, it's an important category that's starting to uh, starting to emerge. Uh, Kai, you know, do you think that we'll see more of this, like CFO tooling? Do you think uh, that the organizations that are starting to use this space are crying out for uh, for other things like it? It seems like there's a huge need for this in the space, but I think just for some of our listeners who are, are new to it, you know, see, I'm curious how you describe, like, how is this different from a business bank account, you know, in Web2? You know, I'm a startup, you know, I'm making money with a new product, I'm going to go and give that money to a business bank. It feels like what you're building is this new category of non-custodial financial products where you're not actually giving your money to a bank but you're using a software layer to help you manage money that is basically the startup being their own bank. Can, so can you unpack that a little more of what does it mean building non-custodial financial products? So that's a change of paradigm, indeed. It means that people actually get to own their, their, their own money, really. Um, so what it means is that as a, as a multi-second holder, you wouldn't have to be KYC'd or onboarded, at least for now, we'll see where the regulation goes. But it means that you can simply manage your funds with uh, some kind of a cryptographic 2FA, right? Your browser wallet, your signature. So you can, you can manage your funds just signing transactions. You don't, you don't need to get identified. You don't need to be, um, um, you don't need to actually rely on you know, a very clunky banking infrastructure that, that may freeze your account, you know, because of technical failures over the weekend. Um, it means that you can actually perform payments over the weekend, which gets instantly received on the other side of the globe. So self-custody means you have a direct access to um, the crypto space, to the crypto infrastructure, without relying on a third party. 
Maltese is a single piece of software which is built on top of those Gnosis safe wallets, wallets that we talked about, which again, um, are 100% in your control. You don't need Maltese to, well, I, I, I like to use the, you know, the, the, the image of, I mean, it's, it's purely money portability. So just like we're getting to data portability, uh, especially in Europe, um, with, uh, with new regulatory frameworks, well, this is money portability. This is the new paradigm. You can move your money and you can actually import your wallet, your Maltese wallet, you can actually import it to other applications and start using their own accounts without us. We don't hold your, we don't hold your, your, your money, your funds. Which is mind blowing, I guess, if you're kind of coming at it from the web to model. Um, Mauricio, I want to bring you in here because, you know, this sounds great, but these organizations that companies like Maltese and Utopia and others are, are serving, you know, Uniswap and Axie and uh, many, many others, there are some really, there are billions and billions of dollars on the line here. This is an industry. It is. And it's interesting that the, the take that T and the team at Maltese are, are taking is that. Uh, we know that this in this age of this industry, uh, user experience just you know, plain sucks, right? And we know this. It's 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 bad. You need to be an engineer to be minimally familiar with everything that we're doing with crypto. So when you take this at the consumer level, is one type of challenge. Uh, but when you take this at the organizational level, with multiple levels of approval, and you have institutional reports that you have to cater to not only the regulators but your investors, there's an added layer of complexity, which only complicates the UX. The fact that we're bringing in an improved user experience for the organizations uh, to deal with crypto is proof that we're moving fast in the right direction. And is my like one of my core beliefs in the industry is that whoever fixes the UX wins the game. There's a huge unlock in terms of onboarding if we fix this. And starting by organizations seems to be the right path, right? Because once you solve this for you know a medium-sized organization, you're actually onboarding, you know, tens or hundreds of people directly onto crypto, which is you know a massive improvement versus what we currently have. So I, I'm I'm a fan of this uh, for for consumers, and you know I think organizations is the you know obvious next step forward. Uh, Ren, your thoughts? Yeah, I think. Um tools like this are so necessary for web two companies who want to onboard into this sector as well, because the UX has been so poor in the past that it's no good saying that blockchain architecture or smart contract architecture provides this kind of data trail if we don't have the tools to interface with that underlying data and make sense of it. And I found it really interesting that, um, for example, I think, T, you've got your upcoming integration with QuickBooks, haven't you? And um, Coindesk is having Crypto Tax Week this week. And this is ever more, obviously, of a preoccupation occupation for institutions, both Web3 organizations and Web2 people who are sort of starting to onboard. And having that analytic layer and all these tools that make reporting so much easier, it, it's, got, it's crucial. It's got to be there if we're going to advance. It's, it's going to be exciting to see. All right, well, uh, we could uh, go on about the whole uh, space for quite some time because I think it's it's worthy of its own show without question. Um, but we are just going to take a quick pause here whilst we let you hear from our sponsors. 
This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11FS.com forward slash decoding. Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're starting off with Solana integrates Web3 Auth to lower the barrier to entry for decentralized applications. And so Solana Labs and Web3 Auth have announced a collaborative digital wallet initiative designed to eliminate the prerequisites for seed phrases in crypto interactions. And so the aim is to streamline a complex process and drive consumer adoption in the Web3 sphere. And so this Solana Taurus Web3 wallet, it's a non-custodial product that enables users to access all decentralized applications and associated wallets within the Solana ecosystem. Uh, so Mauricio, I, I want to start with you to, to unpack this. Of you know, I think some of our listeners are familiar with, if you're setting up a non-custodial wallet, there are these you know, seed words, and you're writing down these seed words you know, how do you think about where key management you know, is evolving and heading towards? And it seems like Web3 Auth you know, is really saying, seed words, this isn't it. <laughs> like We're not going to get mainstream adoption with people writing it down. Uh, so I'm curious your thought on, on, on this perspective of creating new models that don't require you know, some of those UX challenges that we talked about before. Yeah. So I think the overall, as, as we were saying before, the UX in the industry is really uh, starting to become like more of a serious issue for uh, massive adoption. So I think simplifying the way we set up wallets and the way we manage access to those wallets will be really imperative if we want, say, the boomer population to onboard into crypto, because it's it has to be simpler. Uh, but there's the whole security dilemma, right? We have to be simpler, but we need to be secure. So the seed phrases is somewhat of a way to create the input to the cryptography that goes into managing the whole uh, private keys aspect of crypto. And it's a sort of mnemonic way to actually recover if you ever lose any of that. So it was thought to be an easier way than just having your primary key recorded on a piece of paper somewhere. So I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, the intricacies of managing the underlying cryptography and the data according to the users are still sort of unresolved. But the step of Web3 Auth to actually merge that sort of Web2 experience to the Web3 security seems to be the right point to start as we transition into like a native Web3 type of security with a potential, you know, uplift in the way that these things are managed currently in the UX side of things. And T, how, how do you think about this in terms of you know, mainstream adoption you know, for decentralized applications of, 
you know, is this going to, as we see more wallets like this, do you think it'll accelerate, you know, consumers who are, you know, more comfortable using a non-custodial product versus today, you know, a lot of mainstream consumers might go to a custodial product because it has an email and a password and, and what they're used to? I mean, it certainly goes in the right direction. And as a matter of fact, we actually integrated Web3 Auth to our product. So if you, you know, start the um, account creation warp, uh, account creation flow with us, uh, you'll have two options. Either to use a MetaMask wallet, for example, or any kind of browser wallet where you do manage your own key in a more like traditional way, um, crypto traditional way, or you can actually open an account with a Taurus, which is now Web3 Auth. Um, so I do believe in optionality. Um, so leaving the opportunity for people to choose the self-custodial um, wallet they want to they want to use to um, they want to keep to use an application. Um, I'm bullish on those B2C applications using this kind of tools to onboard the mainstream consumer. There's no way people start buying NFTs or other assets if they have indeed to uh, remember their their seed phrases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The one thing I'd keep in mind though is that. It might be good to hold, you know, these kind of wallets might be good to hold, say, 2K, 3K, 5K. Um, I do think we need to do some education as well. Because when you, st- you, you have to remember that this is a change of paradigm. This is also why I like to use the word self-custodial rather than non-custodial. You don't get anybody to yell at if you lose your funds. So we need to educate on people. And the only risk I see with this kind of wonderful tools that we that we need, don't get me wrong. The only risk I see is that it might kind of, you know, people might kind of lose this sense of responsibility and believe that just like with the Web2 pattern, there's somebody there managing funds or making sure that you will get them back. That's the one thing I'm, I'd be a little bit cautious about. Yeah, Rianne, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I was going to say exactly what he said. I think it's a great onboarding tool to have this kind of single sign-on experience. You're buying NFTs for the first time um, and you maybe don't want to put people through this friction-filled experience. But it's that distinction of how much do you feel you would be comfortable having in a wallet that was... Um, all, you know, although it's a non-custodial wallet and um, I've, I've looked at the Web3 auth, um, you know, it's, it, it's great. It's open source. They divide the sections of the key between, you know, different layers of verification between your device, the SSO um, network that you're authenticating with, whether that's Google or Twitter or whatever. It's great the way they're doing it. But at the end of the day, if you lose your device if you haven't backed up your two-factor authentication and your Twitter account gets deleted. That's an awful lot of responsibility to have on other people rather than on yourself. Whereas um, if you lose your device, you lock yourself out of two-factor authentication because lots of people aren't educated in that aspect of managing their own security, let alone crypto. There are still a lot of risk points. And um, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, working in tech, you 
do see a lot of people who don't really understand the necessity, for example, of using an authenticator app instead of a mobile number for 2FA and things like that, or, you know, how to back up the QR codes from your authenticator app to make sure that you can get that back. There are so many layers of people taking responsibility for their own security that have to be addressed even before you get to crypto and wallets that I think developing UX and education to deal with that is probably more of a challenge than just providing somebody with a simple SSO wallet for holding um, lower value NFTs. Yeah, Simon, we've spent hours talking about wallets and what does the future of wallets you know look like? And so it, it feels like this is almost one like a great experience for NFTs as the first time you you get an NFT, but then you might graduate over time, you know, to a more secure wallet. Then you might get to a hardware wallet, and so there are all these different points on the spectrum. How do you see these coexisting and interacting over the coming years? Yeah, security is the uh, the biggest weak point is always the user. This is why phishing attacks are always so difficult, and the trade off is experience versus security historically. So I remember working at a payments company back in two thousand nine, and the infosec guy came around and gave me the education on information security, and he talked about the the three factors of authentication: something you know, something you are, something you have. Something you know would be a password, and that would be single-factor authentication. I'm just using that one thing. Something you are would be biometrics, and something you have might be uh, a Visa card, a debit card, or something like that. And the great thing is when you put two of those together, you get more secure. So I have a Visa card, and I have a PIN. Now I've got two-factor authentication. Or I have a mobile phone and I enter my biometrics. It's something I have and something I am, that two-factor authentication. So what's really, really powerful about multi-factor authentication is if you can build great user experience, you can actually build something that's quite secure. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen this in the cards world. Uh, historically, the card is one of the, the great inventions that, that did that. So I think, you know, to your point about buying your first NFT, how we think about multi-factor authentication for that on-ramp, for that first-time user, I think is really, really powerful. There's going to be a lot of innovation there, I think, in the next couple of years. And that's hugely exciting. Um, but what this wallet does, what Web3Auth does, is sort of take that approach and apply it to the stuff I already have around the internet. So rather than saying, I log into everything with Google, or I just click that one button that was my access to everything, maybe I use my fingerprint on my device. Maybe I use Google as well. Maybe I use something from somewhere else. Maybe it's Twitter. And the more of these other third-party services I can start to put together, the less likely it is that any single one of them has been completely compromised. And so what I end up with is this interesting second step. You know, the first step might be, I just go buy something with my card. The second step might be, there's this user experience where there's multiple factors of auth. And it's kind of interesting that the design pattern for security in Web3 hasn't really been thought through fully yet, but also the design pattern for security in Web2 is still pretty shockingly bad. So there's a huge opportunity here to, to improve it. But the thing with Web3, when it's self-custody, is the consequences of getting it wrong are so much worse. You know, the nobody to yell at problem really um, sucks in this case, because if something goes wrong in my bank today, I know exactly who to yell at, and they're on the hook to make it right. If I am my own bank, then I just got to yell at myself, which, you know, I'm, I'm doing too much lately, so <laughs> I, we should just not do that. It's, it's just fascinating that, 
you know, the crypto industry and the demand for NFTs, it's, it's really incentivizing investment in building around better cybersecurity for the internet you know, to teach and then cybersecurity literacy of you know, teaching people what it means to have a private key and how to protect that private key. And then we're moving less, you know, we're moving away from just a binary of, oh, it's too hard to set a crypto wallet up with, okay, which wallet do you want to set up? And what is, you know, there are trade-offs of this one's easier, but it's, you know, okay for this amount, this one's harder. And, you know, many people in the future may end up having multiple wallets. So maybe T, your, your thoughts on like, how do you educate your customers and what have you seen, you know, when you give them that choice and, you know, is it, they might start with one that's easier and then they graduate over time or, you know, how do you see that evolving? This is exactly what happens. Crypto is a journey. So usually what we see is that, you know, the first people uh, or less crypto familiar people will open their wallet, a web, web three out wallet to sign the transaction with the, with the multi-sig. Uh, one of the key thing though to understand for our listeners is that when you're using a multi-signature wallet, you don't effectively, sorry, the web three authorization wallet will not store funds. You only use it to get authenticated, right? So this is part of this two FA process that you would see in the Web2 industry. So my point being that usually, because those wallets are very simple to use, um, uh, less familiar, less technical people go with this one, and we actually educate them to open new wallets, MetaMask wallets, when they get a little bit more familiar, or, or Rainbow wallets, as an alternative way to sign their transaction if they get hacked or if they lose access to a Taurus wallet. So this is usually the first and second steps. Uh, one of the key things we're trying to educate people with is actually social recovery, um, um, which is something which, you know, we're barely scratching the surface as well. Since you cannot or you want to try as much as possible to rely, um, um, to rely on a third party, well, you know, your peers might be the option. Your peers might be the ones who could potentially give you access back to your funds. So this is something that we're trying to educate people with. So in, in our case, again, you know, talking, talking our, uh, our users, we, you know, invite them to add more people to their accounts so that they have more options to, um, recover access to the wallet, to be invited back to the account and use another wallet to get access to the funds. Um, I'm actually fascinated by apps like Argent, for example, um, um, which are building this social layer around key recovery uh, and making it core to their value proposition, to their product. Uh, and this is probably the next step for us. And um, I assume for many other wallet builders, um, the one thing I usually don't educate people on, though, is having a, a hardware wallet, because you will find out that a lot of people actually lose their hardware wallets and there's no key recovery either. We actually had people, you know, wearing them as, neck as necklaces and just, you know, either losing them with 100K worth of crypto in there or just leaving them in boxes when they were moving out, really. So I would not advise people to rely only on this kind of wallets. If only there was this thing that people were already carrying around with them every day. Um, <laughs> like, how about that? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? There's so much to unpack. We need to do a whole insights episode on wallets. Like just wallets and like what they mean for crypto, we're, we're going to have to do that. But we have to move on to the next story. Uh, and that's a democratic DAO suffers a coup and the new leader steals everything. And so this is from Vice, you know, build finance DAO 
you know, just suffered a coup where one person amassed enough tokens to get a vote passed and then voted to give themselves full control of the DAO, then using this power took all of the money. Uh, and so they announced on Twitter that a malicious actor had accomplished a hostile governance takeover. The person had taken over the token contract, the governance contract, the minting keys, and the project's treasury. And so they ended up taking, drained about $500,000 worth of tokens you know, from the project. Uh, so maybe, Rian, let, let's start with you of, you know, is this the end of DAOs? Like we, we've seen these, these terrible you know, circumstances of, you know, they're not really decentralized. Someone takes it over. Like, why shouldn't we just all give up and go home on the concept of a DAO? And, and, and what do you think about this, this incident? Well, just as it wasn't the end of Ethereum in 2016 when we had the DAO hack, this is just the beginning for DAOs. I am absolutely obsessed with DAOs. And um, in fact, last year, was it last year? I can't remember. I actually won a prize in a government think tank competition about how DAOs could help local communities. Um, and it's something I think about a lot. Um, I think we're... We're so early with this that these are necessary growing pains, which sounds awful and callous for the people who have lost funds. But um, governance bugs are something that people are going to have to think about a lot because um, a, a DAO isn't just a smart contract. It's about people. And you're dealing with the very best and the very worst of people when it comes to governance. And it, we have to think about the human problem as well as the human opportunities, People about the ways people will exploit things for their own benefit. I think people will learn from this and the DAOs of the future will become stronger. I actually don't really see this as being, it's the sort of thing that hits the headlines. I think apathy rather than um, hacks will be the DAO killer if we see the end of DAOs. You need um, numbers of people to actually want to engage in the governance process. And one of the things that I've been looking at a lot with DAOs is looking at the numbers of people, even in the most successful DAOs, who engage in governance votes through Snapshot, for example. I mean, even Decentraland, which obviously is hugely successful, the Decentraland DAO controls, has it has a lot of influence, um, controls a lot of funds, but sometimes you only have um, maybe 15 people voting. And that's um, when you think about the numbers of people who actually have voting capabilities in something like Decentraland. I'm not picking on Decentraland. If you look at any of the big DeFi protocols that are DAOs, similar thing, very small number of people voting. So I think, again, like with wallet management, it's an education process. If people want to be in DAOs, want to hold the tokens, they have to learn to use it or lose it. This has been a really harsh lesson, but I think rather than it being the end of DAOs, we're going to be reading a lot more about DAOs over the coming years. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how you know diverse different governance schemes could be, and like you can say a DAO, you know, the idea of a token orchestrating decisions, but then the rules, the details of how that happens could be very different from one to the other. So, Mauricio, how do you think about like where this is heading? Will there be standards in best practices 
around governance happens? How do you like reinset? How do you increase participation and get people to to vote in, instead of just having a few people and everyone else sitting around? And like, what do you see as the the future model for these to to be more effectively you know governed than some of them have been to date? Well, I think in in Web three is interesting, right? Web one, you had a problem and you lost access to stuff. Web two, you lost your privacy, and Web three, you lose your money. So it's different pains for different scenarios, right? And I believe that this occurrence, as much as the original the DAO uh, hack, are uh, as Rian said, it's growing pains, right? The fact that one actor can amass the quantity of tokens to overtake uh, the DAO completely uh, in a way that this was done shows that amassing tokens might not be the best way to actually uh, select who gets to contribute or gets to vote on the DAO governance, right? So there will be models that's going to spawn from this, which will not be tied to the amount of tokens you have, but maybe the amount of participation. Then you retrofeed all of that into, okay, so if you took a vote, now maybe you can t take two votes in the next uh, election of whatever decision it is, right? So I think there will be uh, some sort of uh, retrofeed effect that will reward participation in participating. So I think that's one model that we'll see emerge. Uh, there, there will be others. Uh, there will be certainly... Um, degrees of contribution, degrees of collaboration, uh, as we, as much as uh, we're seeing with other things, as much as the DAO tooling improves, uh, more data points can be gathered to actually decide, uh, you know, how much a vote is worth in any decisions. So I think it's a big, painful learning process, but I think the fact that this is happening and getting into the headlines and having people discuss about it within and outside of DAOs is important for us to mature the model. And as everything in this industry, this is transitional. And the way we're tackling this by speaking about it is probably the best way to do this. It's an open source world and discussing these things openly is what will get us you know, over the line. Yeah, it, it seems like the, the token distribution you know, has to be you know, well thought out of you know, how are people getting access to them and then the ability to earn tokens instead of just buy them um, is is another element, but there's also this notion of just the interface and, and the user experience challenges of figuring out what's going on and following a DAO. And you know, Simon, I, I know you're in you know, plenty of, of Discord groups these days. How do you think about just the challenge of keeping up and knowing when a vote is happening? And is that an opportunity? Will there be more tools that are built where it's more like your LinkedIn feed where you can see what's happening with DAOs instead of a mess of, of Discord notifications? Uh, oh, completely. <laughs> Often the only way I know a vote is happening is somebody hits my DMs and goes, dude, please, can you just go vote on the snapshot? Because like you're, we're waiting for you. And it's like, okay, sorry. Like you airdropped me a bunch of tokens and like that was on you, not me. So I'm, I'm trying to help out over here. But yeah, I mean, look, if we step back for a second, um, governance has always been hard. Um, you know, with with companies, we developed some norms. Uh, in the past few years, Web2 startups developed the difference between preferred stock and common stock and then uh, kind of option pools. And that's fairly well understood of like, you know, what's the what's the preference stack look like on shareholdings and what does this what does that mean? But founders still mess up governance. 
Founders still fall out with each other. Um, companies that go public still have activist investors. Like you don't solve governance because you monetized it. But what's really the flip side of this hack is to Rian's point is yes, it's a real shame for anybody who's lost money, but the experimentation is forcing us to think about different models and that's exciting. Um, so we don't want one token, one vote necessarily is the only answer. It might be an answer. But do I want token oligarchs that just uh, can can move a single DAO as they see fit? Probably not. Um, but tokens are these remarkable, um, flexible technologies. You can make them non-transferable. You don't just have to have one type of governance token. You could have a token that leads to airdropping another one for just contributors. You can say that only contributors get to vote on this thing, but other people get to vote on this thing. Like... <laughs> We will see the the sophistication of this space really start to improve on the what can you do at the infrastructure level. And I love that point, Kai, about like um, there needs to be a good summary. There needs to be a feed like TLDR this stuff for me, people like we are my my information diet is already like the top of funnel of that thing is is ridiculous. So help me with a filter, please. That is that is my plea to the whole world. Or can we just like stop doing stuff for a month? <laughs> so I can catch up like that'd be nice that's that's not gonna happen T your your final thoughts on this and, and we have to, to move on you have customers who are you know DAOs that are using your, your platform well um, founders are extremely anxious and stressed about those governance questions uh, most of the time you have hackers um, starting to build a protocol and then they're like oh okay um, we have to have people involved and they start you know hacking around the different kind of governance um, um, things um, one of the key issues we see with governance um, these days is how long it takes to actually make a decision. So you actually have DAOs and protocol teams who tell us, well, maybe we decentralized a little bit too soon, right? So this is a core theme we see in the space because we know that in order to issue tokens, in order to get some traction and visibility, we need to decentralize the development of the protocol we rush things out. We leave, um, you know, um, room for hacks, for breaches. Um, the one thing with a smart contract is that once you uh, deploy it, once you launch it, um, there's no going back. It's live. This is it. So you have to be sure that everything is 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 sound. Um, and um, and I guess I guess you know um, uh, what, what we see a lot is 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 uh, a new generation of protocol builders who wants to think about governance in a much more deeper way, uh, where they start to create value when they want to maximize the skin in the game, the people, the, the stakeholders actually using those protocols. And only then do they um, decentralize governance. So I guess this is a step, an intermediate step, that is very often neglected for the sake of launching of token and getting traction and visibility. Hence, DAOs being hacked or um, you know funds being mis misused. Um, I do think there's room from, for, for products, whether it's, you know, Maltese or any kind of product where those DAOs, those founders, those core team can actually notify their shareholders, stakeholders, um, with, you know, simple domain notification. That will be a huge start. Just having a digest, receiving a digest directly in your mailbox telling you that there's such a proposal and that you invited to join. Actually, you know what? I'm going to add it to the product uh, to the product roadmap right now. I think this is definitely something where we could add value. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> <laughs> please, 
Please do. I think I, we we all we all need that. So I, I think in the final final part of the show, we want to quickly round up uh, on other stories of the month. We didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Simon, can you start us off? One of the big stories was uh, $1.7 million worth of NFTs apparently being stolen in a phishing attack on OpenSea users. Um, so uh, you can probably Google the details of this yourself. But again, it comes to the point we were making earlier, like the technology often isn't the issue, it's users. Um, and phishing attacks still happen in Web3. So we need better user experience. We need better tools. And um, being your own bank and being your own vault comes comes with its concerns. Um, so yeah, uh, we will see more of this, I think, but we'll also see better tools emerge. And that's exciting. Kai. And then Colorado to accept crypto for state taxes. So Colorado will accept cryptocurrencies for tax and other payments to the state by the end of the summer. Governor Jared Polis you know, said on Wednesday, uh, for consumer convenience, we want to accept payment in a wide variety of cryptocurrencies, just as we do in in credit cards. So interesting to see you know, more and more you know state uh, officials you know really leaning into crypto in places like Florida and um, you know folks in in New York and in Colorado. And so you know it's it seems like there's a a clear base that you know they're benefiting from by you know being you know pro crypto. Uh, and the last story we didn't have time to cover is the sort of several pro athletes among a group trying to raise four billion to buy the Denver Broncos football team. Um, so we have Dow's buying golf courses. We have Dow's trying to buy the Constitution, um, but actually trying to buy the Denver Broncos. Um, it, this is exciting to the point about Dow's and governance um, and community ownership. There are already community-owned sports teams. That is not a first. Um, but what's interesting here is how the governance model might, might start to change and how a DAO can become this community, real-time, global sort of fan base um, and an engagement mechanism for ownership of these large assets. It's going to be exciting to see, although I'm reminded of the Simpsons episode where Homer really wants to have the Dallas Cowboys and ends up with the Denver Broncos. So, you know, there's, there's once again, the Simpsons have predicted... Um, a weird future um it's it's always the way um it's time for tweet of the week as well to finish out the show so on our last segment of the show we wanted to give a shout out to Pranayanka desai who uh who has been on the show before and apparently mark zuckerberg wants his staff to be known as metamates does anybody does anybody want to say anything about that are we just going to back away from that like the homer meme backing and yeah everybody's back homer backing into the bush like wow Wow. Wow. All right, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Let's start with you, Rian. At Rian underscore is on Twitter. Uh, Mauricio. 11affairs.com, obviously, and also Spot at Twitter. Check it out, people. Uh, T? Maltese.com. We just got the .com, so check it out. Heck yeah, you did. Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Perfect. And you'll find me at SY Taylor on Twitter uh, or blogging over at Fintech Brain Food. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, and if you love it, leave us a review. Those reviews help us out so, so much. Thank you uh, so much and goodbye for now. <laughs>